Not sure whether you thank you before. You're very welcome, though, for whatever it is. It's uh, very good to be back. Uh, a little bit croaky still uh, from, yeah, def- voices affected from the cough and so on, but uh, feeling good. Uh, I don't know if I'm looking good. Has anything changed there? Uh, Aaron asked if I'd lost my sense of taste. You might say I never had that to start with, but uh, have I lost my sense of humour? No, I don't know. Uh, some say I never had that to start with. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, thank you for being a God who speaks and who has a powerful word that created this universe and that changes our lives. We pray, please, that you'd help us. Thank you as we think through being your servants uh, and being out there with the gospel and this great message, particularly with Easter coming up and uh, second term evangelism. Uh, we do pray for us to shine brightly uh, as a city on a hill. Amen. Well, I think this is my favourite part of the year, not just because it's not hot like summer uh, and it's just nice, but no, because we're at Easter and we're coming into evangelism term. Uh, We don't want to be a church that just pays lip service to God's purposes and plans. We want to be about it. We don't want to be like Jonah, who we've been hearing about the last few weeks, who are Uh, grumpy and resentful in bringing God's message to a city that doesn't know its right hand from its left. Uh, We want a heart that's like God's heart, don't we? Uh, We want to be a light on a hill. We want to be the salt of the earth as Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount. But most churches find that easy to say but very hard to do. And we found over the years that having a heightened season of mission has been particularly helpful in galvanising our prayers, our convictions and spurring us into actions. It's been difficult the last couple of years with COVID and so we really haven't had a red hot go at uh, mission since 2019 but this is the year. Uh, And so in church we're going to be diving into Matthew's gospel and Getting to know Jesus himself. So people who come along that we might bring uh, or walk in can hear and meet the master. Uh, we've got some great events for all sorts of different groups and different ages and stages. It'll be lots of fun. Shooting bottle rockets, men's barefoot bowling. Uh, there's a world's biggest morning tea. There's other stuff coming up uh, that's going to be interesting and fun. Uh, and we'll be encouraging each other in our personal relationships and in our small groups uh, to to share our faith Uh, and towards the end of term we'll be kicking off some um, dessert coffee night discussions about Christianity as well so it's going to be an exciting term but when it comes to being out there with the gospel and inviting people to stuff like that and sharing our faith I think most of us tend towards one of two camps on the one hand some of us tend towards becoming Rambo. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those classic Hollywood movies, cinema masterpieces, uh, but you know the kind of guy I'm talking about, you know, the religious person who's out for a fight, who takes no prisoners, who's looking to shoot everyone down who disagrees. I will say, that's for for their good, Uh, they need to know and I'm the one who's going to tell them. Whether it's a non-Christian we know needs Jesus or a colleague who who says they're a Christian but we're a bit sus maybe because of the church they go to or we're not really sure they've understood it. Rambo's going in, not going to die wandering and it's all guns blazing. 
But on the other hand, there's those who tend towards being more like this, <laughs> being turtles. The person who ducks for cover every time anything close to a religious conversation comes up, heads straight into the shell. Uh, it could be because we just don't care, but I suspect more often it's, it's out of fear that we're ducking for cover. Uh, fear that uh, of feeling awkward, I just wouldn't know what to say. How do I even bring it up? What's, what if they ask me something that I don't know? You know or, or, or they ask me to give them evidence. You know, what would I say? I don't know. Maybe it's fear that if I don't say exactly the right thing in the right way, that they'll never turn to Christ. And so it's better not to say anything at all in case I get it wrong and lead them astray. But I think more often we turtle because we're worried about what they'll think of us. That they'll think either that we're gullible for being believers in something, in a god or fairy stories, that that we're wusses, we're not real men or real women, that we're narrow-minded or worse, we we don't want them to think we're wrong. (laughs) Uh, No one wants to be thought of as being wrong. And those of us who tend towards being turtles, I think we find it very easy to excuse because we've all seen what being Rambo's like in other people and how well that goes down. And doubly so in a culture like ours where you can be loud and proud about anything and everything as long as you're not middle-aged, middle-class Christian. Uh, And particularly if you also happen to be a man. No one wants to hear from you. And so you go, oh, well... That's good. I'll just shut up and we're okay with that. And so I think for both groups, both the Rambos and the Turtles, the issue is about having disagreements and how to handle them. Rambo doesn't care about getting into fights. In fact, the more the merrier, the bigger the disagreement, the better, because it gives us more of an opportunity to show that we're right and they're wrong. Right? Arguments are like a test of strength for Rambo. Right? They, they, you can tell if there's a winner because the other person shuts up. If they're still talking, they haven't admitted defeat yet. Turtles, on the other hand, they never get into disagreements uh, if they can help it. And if they do happen to find themselves in one, it's totally by accident. And you can tell that they don't want to be there because their eyes are starting to dart around looking for the exit. You know, there's a little warning going off in the head going, eject, eject, eject. You know, they're trying to punch out. So which one do you tend towards being? Rambo or a turtle? I look around this group and I I think I can see a bit of both uh, in here. So what I want to do today is think about how God would have us be. Is one of them right, one of them wrong, or is it something else? And how he'd have us go about handling disagreements respectfully and lovingly as we share the gospel and defend the truth because disagreements are going to come. They'll come in all sorts of areas of life, but they'll become, they'll particularly come if you're standing up for Jesus, like it or not. They have to, don't they? Because we're in sharing Jesus, we're calling people out of ignorance, out of darkness. We're calling them to real change and real commitment. We're trying to displace the idol that they've put in, in place of God and restore God to his rightful position. Now, God's the one in the end who's going to do that work through his Holy Spirit, but, but we're, we're the instruments. And, and when you're displacing someone's God 
That, that's going to lead to a fight. People don't like change and they don't like challenge. And so disagreements are going to come. And I guess I could just say, if you tend towards being a Rambo, tone it down a bit. Not everyone wants to hear everything you've got to say all the time. Right? And I could say, well, if you're a turtle, grow a backbone, stick your head out sometimes and start talking, even though you know you're going to cop flack. But to me, that doesn't sound all that satisfying. And I think it's unlikely to do anything except make you feel guilty, which isn't that helpful. But it's also more complicated than that, isn't it? Because who am I talking to? What's the situation? Who's listening in on this conversation that I could be having now? Is there a right time to talk? Is there a right way to go about it? Is there a wrong time? Uh, what if I don't know how to start? What if I don't know how to stop? I'll just keep going. Yeah, so there's all kinds of issues and questions about what I'm like and who God's made me to be that's it's in it as well. But, but it's also difficult to answer for another reason because if we're going to talk about handling disagreements respectfully and lovingly, it begs the question, who gets to define respectful and loving? Because it seems our world would say that being respectful means to never say anyone's wrong about anything at all. Right? You can't call any view into question or you're being disrespectful. You know, if there's disagreement, it's going to hurt someone's feelings and that's disrespectful. Uh, to dare to claim that you know there's an objective truth is arrogant, which is even more disrespectful. So we've got a problem there, don't we? And loving these days goes even further than that. Loving, according to the world, means to affirm everyone about everything. To love someone is to cheer them on. It's to okay them in their beliefs, in their lifestyle, in their choices, no matter how illogical, how inane, how dangerous or how damaging they might happen to be to themselves, to others, to people around the community, to their church, to, to salvation. So if that's what respectful and loving mean, then we definitely should all be turtles, shouldn't we? And just pull our heads in and say nothing, which you might think, well, that suits me just fine. <laughs> but in God's view, it's not unloving or disrespectful to point out the truth. It's not unloving or disrespectful to disagree. Uh, you can be unloving in your motivation for saying something, but it's not necessarily unloving or disrespectful in itself to say something. Speaking the truth is not unloving or disrespectful in itself. In fact, we're told by God in Ephesians 4 to speak the truth in love. And it's not even unloving to dismantle or even tear down someone's cherished views or beliefs. Again, how you go about it might be, but the very act of doing might be one of the greatest acts of love and respect that we could offer. It's not even disrespectful and unloving to get angry. Jesus, he was furious when he went to town in the temple and turned over the tables and chucked everyone out, made whip, right, and was whipping people and the animals out, right, in his anger. But that was driven by his love because this is a house of prayer for all nations and you're stopping people having a relationship with God. So what I want to do is take us to uh, an incredible part of God's word, 2 Corinthians 4, just as a one-off today. How can you be courageous about your faith Stand up and be counted, but also be fueled by a love that will temper and shape the way we discuss Jesus. Well, I think 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is the secret. 
Uh, it's written by a guy that wasn't scared of a fight. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 10, later in the same book, he says, we're at war and the war is a battle of ideas. We are tearing down strongholds with weapons in our right hand and left hand uh, and we're demolishing arguments. That's what we're about. But it's also the guy who wrote that chapter on love that we all had at our weddings or that we've been to you know, 90 weddings that we've had. Love is patient, love is kind, love is... It's the Apostle Paul and he's writing into a situation of terrible conflict over the gospel. False teachers who call themselves super apostles have infiltrated and seduced the church and they were well-connected people, they were well-groomed, they were stylish, sophisticated, they came highly recommended with letters of recommendation from other places they'd been. People were impressed by them and they were impressive. And they're preaching a very acceptable secular sort of religion a new sort of christianity a super gospel way more impressive than paul's a gospel of power of victory with spiritual encounters you can brag about no pain and they've been bagging paul out as and his gospel as weak and pathetic and the whole letter really is a masterful study in defending the truth and respectfully and lovingly but in chapter four i think there's some key principles which really will help us know what to do when we find ourselves talking about the gospel and facing the false worldviews and spiritual beliefs that people cling to and are keeping them from embracing Jesus Christ. And there's two things I particularly want to draw out. There's more you could get out of it, but the first is the motivation. There's a right motivation, which means we'll want to be in the business of sharing Jesus and defending the truth. And we won't mind sticking our necks out at least a bit, even if it comes to a fight. Why, why it is we can't just be turtles? But then second, uh, is, is how should we think of ourselves as we go about it? and a, a way that will temper and shape us so that we might be really mighty instruments in the hands of God rather than just gunning everyone down who disagrees. And so I want to start with motivation because unless you get your motivation right, then nothing else is going to matter. And so verse 1, 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. What drives Paul on? What keeps him fighting and at war in, in love? Why won't he give up? Why won't he lose heart? Why won't he despair and run away with his tail between his legs or just pull his head into the shell? Because we were shown mercy. It's so basic, isn't it? You remember what Paul was before all this? He changed his name when he became a Christian. He was Saul. He was a vicious, violent psychopath. He was the great persecutor of Christians, going from house to house, dragging people off to prison, complicit in the murder of many he really was Rambo and not just metaphorically. And yet God had tremendous mercy on him and that mercy is what we all need. The mercy of God in not destroying him where he stood. The mercy of God in shaking him out of his stupidity and his hatred. The, the mercy of God in bringing him to, to kneel before Jesus. The mercy of God in, in granting him forgiveness and new life and a future in glory the mercy of god in sealing him with the holy spirit he didn't deserve any of that 
If he did, it wouldn't be mercy, would it? It would be earned. But it was mercy. And, and I wonder, do you know the mercy of God? Do you know that he's called you into his family? He has bought you at a great price, not because there's something noble or praiseworthy about you or because you're so good-looking or clever or funny or strong or wonderful that God couldn't help but have you as part of his people, but because he's generous and full of loving kindness and he's merciful. Because it changes everything about life if you know his mercy. It gives you drive. It gives you a heart for God's work and to come to see people come to have that same mercy themselves. When you know that without Jesus people are going to hell, you fear for them because you are saved from there yourself by God's mercy. And when you know the love of Christ, which saves you from hell, it compels you. It drives you forward. That love that gets us up in the morning and, and helps us to recommit each day to him and to be prepared to be about his business. And it stops us giving up when we're embarrassed or when it's hard. Since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. What would giving up and losing heart look like? Well, it might mean turtling, mightn't it? <laughs> you know, never saying anything. The turtle's given up before they've even gotten started. But giving up could also mean distorting the message, uh, which is what the super apostles had sucked everyone in by. Verse 2, Instead, we've renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. See, the super apostles were motivated by other stuff, by greed, because they were making money out of being uh, religious preachers. They were motivated by the power and the influence that they could have in people's lives and the popularity. And what they did was use all sorts of trips and techniques that are still being used today to distort the message, right? Fudging the church attendance, telling everyone how many thousands of people get converted here every week, putting others down to build yourself up, uh, you know, using manipulative music to tug at the heartstrings, uh, promising things that are just not true, faking miracles, selling merch, uh, or just plain distorting God's message, like the super apostles were, who we're warned about over and over in the scriptures are going to come and that it's possible to be dragged off by, and it's possible even to start repeating their rhetoric, you know, as you want to give people what their itching ears want to hear rather than the truth they do need to hear. Cherry-picking the nice bits of the Bible to produce a gospel that's got no challenge, no hell, no repentance. Take out all the hard bits, all the bits which people might find confrontational, take out anything that's contrary to popular opinion or to secular wisdom, just get rid of it, change it. And you can do that and still sound like you're speaking Christianity. You're saying something gospel-ish. In chapter 11, Paul warns the Corinthian church that false teaching and false teachers, always, you know what they always talk about? Jesus the Spirit 
and the gospel. That's a worry, isn't it? Because what do we talk about? Jesus, the Spirit. It's not they're using different words. They just mean something different by them. It looks and sounds so good, almost like the real thing. Sounds like it might be just the thing you need, but it's a dud. It's a lie. It's a sham. A friend of mine once bought an American muscle car from the States. It cost him a lot of money. To, to purchase it, uh, to have it modified to, um, to what are we, what right-hand drive from left-hand drive, um, had it shipped out for even more money, uh, it cost him almost the same to get it out of here, uh, and somehow he got to drive it off the dock. Uh, and uh, it was full of petrol, but it had run out of petrol by about two blocks later because it was an American, he bought it, from drug dealers who'd been using it as a drug running vehicle across the border in, from America to Mexico. It only had to go 10 k's um, through the cave system. <laughs> and so they converted the fuel compartment into a drug compartment and it only had a little 10 litre tank, just enough to get you to the next petrol station. and fill. It's a dud, right? It's hopeless. It doesn't do the job. Uh, and false gospels and false spiritualities that people's minds are filled with are like that. Whether it's the new age or secular humanism or hedonism or materialism or mysticism or any of the warped forms of Christianity that are out there, they can sound so good, they can look really good, they look the ticket, but they're spiritually disastrous and they're keeping people in the dark. They're just like that car, a dud, just like the devil himself who's behind them all, who masquerades as an angel of light. And we mustn't be part of the problem by watering down the message to a form that sounds nice because we're scared of disagreements. If we're motivated by the mercies of God, what do we do instead? We don't give up and instead we commend ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. When you understand that Jesus is going to judge, when you know that hell is real, when you understand the mercy of God, the love of Jesus, which is the only way, truth and life, you commend yourself in people's sight and in God's sight by talking straight and by not mucking around. This is the word of God that you've got to communicate. right? This is what he's got to say to you. It's what he's got to say to our city. It's what he's got to say to our world. It's what he's got to say to your family and neighbours and colleagues. Here is the truth that sets people free. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm feeling a little bit fired up right now. Maybe, maybe we should all go all Rambo. But before we all go off half-cocked, you've got to be motivated right, but we've also got to see things right. You've got to see yourself right. If the turtle's problem is motivation, Rambo's problem is self-image. How should we see ourselves in relation to a lost world around us and in relation to the people who are being led astray by false gospels and false promises, whether they're secular or religious or sub-Christian? Well, Paul gives us two images to help us see ourselves right. Two ways to think of ourselves in 2 Corinthians 4. He gives more on the rest of the book, but here's two. To see ourselves as servants and to see ourselves as clay pots. All right? Uh, earthenware. 
Uh, he says we've got to see ourselves as servants. Verse 5, we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Actually, in the, in the original language, it's stronger than that, the word slaves. We proclaim ourselves as slaves, your slaves for Jesus' sake. That's pretty confronting, isn't it? Uh, very different to the strong, independent master of our own domain, uh, the world's your oyster vision of life our world promotes. Don't let anyone tell you who to be or what to do. You do you. But when you understand the gospel, you understand it's hopelessly flawed. It's a terrible way to do life. Because real life, true life, satisfying life and life of joy, according to God, is a life of service. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But who are we supposed to be servants or slaves of? Well, Jesus, for sure, he's the Lord after all, not me, but that's not what he says. Who's slaves? We are your slaves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. That is, service to the people around, to the people we're talking to, to the people we're engaging with and ministering to. That's going to change how we view disagreements and arguments and how we go about sharing our faith, isn't it? We're here to help. We're not out to score points. We're not there to look good ourselves or to prove how clever we are or to dominate or to put people in their place. We're not doing it to impress other Christians who might be listening in and scoring us. You know, We're not doing it because... We told our prayer group this week we would and they're going to ask us how it went next week and we feel guilty. <laughs> um, we're doing it because of the mercy of the king to bring the word of life to people who need it. They are blind, hopeless and helpless heading for destruction like the Ninevites in Jonah 4, not knowing their right hand from their left, just as we once were. They need help. They need the saviour. And they need us to be the messengers. They don't need a belligerent idiot who's gone red in the face and all worked up. They need you to be patient and kind with them and so gently work through the issues. They have been blinded by Satan's lies and it's only the power of God in the gospel that can bring light into that darkness. And what a light and what a power it is, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. To be a servant of others with the gospel isn't weak, it's not pathetic, it's to wield the greatest power that the world has ever known, the power that brought everything into existence in the first place. Do you see yourself as a servant there to help bring light to the dark? But we're also something else. We're clay pots, verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power, and it is extraordinary power, may be from God and not from us. Imagine a precious, priceless treasure, an enormous gem, you know, the, the, the big ruby on the, 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 coin, on the crown, the a huge nugget of gold, like the one from Hill End. We all saw photos as kids, you know. Uh, a pearl of immense value. But it's being kept in a cheap, disposable, unremarkable, chipped clay pot. 
or a Chinese takeaway container. (laughs) What's the treasure he's talking about? Well, the gospel, that's the treasure. It's Christ crucified. But it's been carried by unimpressive people. Paul himself's a clay pot. And we are too. God puts his gospel through which he works his incredible universe-creating power in people like Paul and like us to carry to the world. Now, why would God do that? Why would God put his treasure there? Maybe it seems irresponsible, a bit dumb. Maybe, maybe you think, well, no, the greatest treasure deserves the greatest showcase. But God does it intentionally. And he does it to show that the extraordinary power is from him and not from us. Because just think, if, if the, you put the treasure in a beautiful, ornate, jewel-encrusted, gold-coated box, people might just get confused about what the real treasure is. Is it the gospel or is it you? Is it the box or is it the thing in it? No one's going to get mixed up and think somehow the precious, valuable, wonderful things, the chip clay pot, which is why God gives his gospel to unimpressive people. You don't have to be someone you're not to defend the truth or share the gospel. You don't have to pretend to be smarter than you are. You don't have to dress cooler. You just have to be you. And it doesn't matter if you've got all the answers to every question you might ever be asked Um, no one does people who think they do are basically pains in the neck (laughs) you can be honest about it if someone asks you something you haven't thought about don't know the answer to you just say I don't know (laughs) Um, good question but you know what how about I go find out and get back to you If you see yourself as the other person's servant to bring them the light of the gospel, if you see yourself as a clay pot with a great treasure within, you don't worry about looking dumb or feeling insecure. And if someone wants to bamboozle you and score points against you with their 50-point rebuttal of... um, you know, from their atheist philosophy background but built on the flimsiest foundations, who cares? So what? You know? They're just trying to fob you off. Don't be overawed. Keep your cool. Just say what you know and pray for God to work in them. God doesn't tell us to have the exact right five bullet points ready to go for every objection against Christianity or in every heresy. But he does say, let your conversation be seasoned with salt and have a reason for the hope that you have so you can answer anyone who asks you, why are you a Christian? Why, why do you go to church? Why, what's this Jesus thing that you, you go on about? Yeah, you can have an answer to that. Now, I'm not saying don't go arm yourself. You should do that. The more you dwell in the truth of the gospel yourself, the more your spidey senses will tingle when there's an opportunity or when you hear something screwy, and, and the more you'll be able to work out what's wrong and have a better answer. But you don't need to have it all figured out now. God's been in the business of using clay pots like you and me for thousands of years and he's been doing it very successfully he's got it covered he'll even use our stumbling efforts the treasure within is what matters 
which is the gospel, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, there's heaps more we could suck out of 2 Corinthians, but I reckon if we've got the right motivation, the mercy of God, the love of Jesus that compels us, if we've got a right view of ourselves as servants and as clay pots, we'll be well prepared to share our faith, to talk about Jesus, to make the invitation, to even defend the truth at the right time in the right way. We'll be alert for opportunities, we'll be eager to share the truth, we'll stand up for our faith, and we'll do it all in love as we're told by our God to do. So who are you praying for? How are you going to make the most of Easter of our evangelism term? Are you ready to go? Father, we thank you for this challenge and your wisdom, which the world doesn't understand, for the mercy that you've shown on us. And we pray that we would be prepared. Help us to think of ourselves as servants, not as masters, and help us to think of ourselves as clay pots with a great treasure within that the world needs to hear that's full of your universe-creating power that really does bring light into the darkness. Help us to point to Jesus in the right way at the right time. Give us answers when we don't know. Uh, help us to be prepared when the opportunities arise. Amen.